Welcome back to Let's Get Haunted with your hosts, Matt Strawn and Allie. Welcome back, guys, to episode 99 of wow. Let's Get Haunted. Wow. We are one episode away from episode 100. Yes, exactly. And if you flip that nine, you get a 69. That's right. And episode 69 came out on 420 last year and we Never won't forget. let it go. Never forget. Never fucking forget. <laughs> I would like to take this opportunity to shout out all of the excellent donors who have made it possible for us to keep recording this mediocre podcast. I would like to shout out Mel S, Brenna M, Kara H, Kara H, Ricky L, Mariah and John, Haley A, Julia S, Grim W, Anonymous, Bettania G, Camille C, Jessica S, aka Artsy Starkey, Tim S, Brianne M, Mariah and John again, Summer V, Shannon K, Colin R, Taylor B, Allie R, Elise F, Brianne M, Sydney L, Elena B, Omar M, Kinsley M, Lauren H, Cindy, Charlie B, Elizabeth J, Brianne M, Malik, Bettania G, Burgess B, Robin H, Anna J, Cadence G, Erica B, Sarah B, Lauren F, Nev O, Justin S, Initial Response, Michael, Alyssa G, Mariah and John again, and Caroline R. Thank you guys so much. We recorded episodes in advance, so we weren't able to do all of the donations in real time, but now we're back and we're reading all the donations. That's right. We are so grateful. And Make it rain on these hoes. That's right. We're the hoes in this scenario. Yes. And I would also like to just say, Mariah and John, your generosity last year does not go unnoticed because they wrote us a little note saying that one of them got a raise. I'm not sure which one does the donating because oh, wow. both of the names are listed. And so they donated $69.69. They donated $69 again oh, and they amazing. donated $50. Wow. So these donations Thank that I so read much. out are from the end of October of last year through the final day of December of last year. And in our next episode, I will make sure to read off the 2022 donations that I got. But I wanted to make sure that the 2021 folks had their own dedicated episode. Uh, you guys, literally so amazing. If you want to donate to us, there are several ways you can do it. Most recently, you can go to letsgethaunted.com and there's a way to donate us to us right there. Super easy. You can also Venmo me at Nat Strawn or paypal.me slash Nat Strawn or cash app uh, dollar sign Natalia Strawn or you can hit Allie on Kofi. That's right. We have a Kofi account. Uh, it will be linked in the description down below along with our website link. And you can go to either of those locations to donate money. Or you can Venmo me at DogMomUSA. Nat and I pool all of the money to keep this podcast going. We're currently looking at office space, which we talked about last episode, I believe, mm -hmm. or maybe two episodes yeah. ago now. And 
So we really appreciate it. We really appreciate any support you guys can give us. Pretty sure Manscaped is not wanting to give us another sponsorship. (laughs) So (laughs) even though we gave them the best advertisement I've ever seen for Manscaped. Honestly, they're lost. Buy our merch in the merch store. Natalia made these excellent robes. Yes. Which are almost sold out, I believe. I think we have like six left. Wow. And so if if you go on there and there's still some left, you got to swoop them up. Or if you go on there, perhaps Natalia will do a pre-order for the next round of robes, not making any promises. Mm-hmm. But just keep checking back because you never know what we're going to have up yes, there. Yes, they're they're amazing. They're black, fluffy robes. They're, they're very, uh, very fluffy, very comfy. And they say, let's get haunted, haunted hotel and casino on them. Incredible. And on the belt, it says, buckle the fuck up. They are embroidered. They are amazing. I Imagine love it. your life. Okay, you're you're going to meet up with your goth friends at the mall. You're wearing a black robe. They look at you and they're like, "Is that a robe?" And then you're like, "No, it's a Let's Get Haunted Haunted Hotel and Casino robe." And they're like, "Oh my god, you're a classy motherfucker." Yes. That's what they're gonna say to you. It also reminds me. Does anyone remember that really old? like meme where that guy is sexting someone and then he just keeps going I put on my robe and wizard hat (laughs) (laughs) don't you want that to be your life yeah it could be it could be all this and more you can go to a Halloween store get a wizard hat and Mm -hmm. then get our robe and now you can live your dreams yeah I would also like to request everyone who has not done so yet please go to Spotify and rate us five stars Spotify didn't used to have ratings it used to only be Apple podcasts but now you can make sure everyone knows that we're doing an okay job and we would really (laughs) appreciate it it helps a lot it really does ratings guys we we have to be able to tell people that we're not just two scammers pretending to have a podcast so that we can talk to people who have been um, involved in crimes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Well, Natalia, without further ado, would you like to jump into today's story? Yes, let's, let's buckle. I'm buckled the fuck up. Let's go. Okay. On October 21st, 1978, A small Cessna airplane making a short, routine flight would disappear from the face of the Earth. But not before leaving one last very odd and very cryptic final transmission. I fucking hate this shit you do. Like, every story you tell is, like, so cryptic and mysterious. This story, I heard this story for the first time many moons ago, and it's something that has stuck with me over all these years, and I'm so excited to finally get to tell someone else about it, because it's just been rattling around in my brain, in my, like, brain of that meme where I'm just the guy going, aliens. <laughs> yeah. So right. <laughs> I'm I'm ready to tell you about this. Okay. The story I am about to tell you today is one of the most well-publicized aviation disappearances since that of Amelia Earhart. Today we will be discussing the suspected abduction of Frederick Valintich. 
Natalia, have you ever heard the story of Frederick Valentich? No. So, like, how famous can it be? I've heard of Amelia Earhart. I haven't heard of Frederick Valentich. You're in for a real treat because let me start first before I get too caught up in this story by showing you some photos of this man. All right. Is he hot? I'm going to make a prediction. I'm going to say that you're going to think he's hot, but also I'm going to say that now that I've said that, you're going to say that you think he's not hot. How do you know me so well? (laughs) Seriously, that's what I was thinking. Before even seeing him, I was like, I bet he's going to be hot. And then I was like, I bet. Actually, I'm just going to say whatever. He's hot. Is he? (laughs) Or I can't decide if he's hot because you said he was hot. You're right. You're right. I mean, he, he, describe him. Go ahead and describe him to our audience. I don't know. Maybe he's not hot. So it's basically just an average looking guy, but he's wearing like a uniform with That's what does it. Yeah. He's wearing like a tie and a blazer that has like little airplane pins on it and like a really fancy like pilot hat. You know, the kind that's got like a, a visor on it and the top is like all like, you know, what do you even call that? It's like a policeman's hat. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's just, uh, yeah, it's, well, it's like a pilot's hat, you might say. Yeah. Because he is a pilot. You add on 10 points if they're wearing any a, a sort uniform. of uniform. Right. Yeah. And if you guys want to see these pictures and weigh in on whether or not you think he's hot, you can go to at Let's Get Haunted and let us know your opinion on these photos. But I will say that black and white photos and something about pilots, mm. I think, makes people look hotter than they may have been in real life. Yeah, no, black and white. I know this from experience. If I have like a video or a photo that's not that good and you put the black and white filter on it, it's good. Immediate (laughs) plus three points. Okay. (laughs) Frederick Valentich was born on June 9th, 1958 to Italian immigrant parents Guido and Alberta Valentich. Gemini's, where you at? He had one younger brother, Richard, who was eight years his junior, and a sister whose name and age I could not find despite paying $40 for an Ancestry.com membership. (laughs) What? So I could not find her information. You are full on like crazy. Like, you know how they're like, the joke is like, oh, I when I open up my Safari and he sees like I researched his ex's name on, you know. Right. Or when I accidentally like his ex's photo from 12 years ago on Instagram. Or like he looks at my phone and sees that I like looked up the his parents' house on Zillow or something. Like that is that level of crazy. Yes. Well, I tried and I could not figure out her name. Now, and now saying that, I know someone's going to comment on the photo dump for this episode and be like, I found it in two seconds and then I'm going to feel really stupid. But I don't know. I couldn't find her name. In 1978, Frederick was 20 and Richard was 12. Frederick was a good older brother, often taking Richard out to the movies with him. And he had also recently met and gotten engaged to a 16-year-old girl named Rhonda. Wait, what? Back up. Hold on. How old was he? 20. And where was this? Australia. Seems not good, right? Well, that's what my year was this? 1978. No, this is not. No. no. I don't know what the customs are in Australia, and I did not care to research it. Um, but that's a fact of the story. Degenerates. The Australians are a bunch of degenerates, right? Not sure. If you're, a, I know we have a lot of Australian listeners. Let me know if this is normal or not. I was trying to reserve <laughs> judgment because in the US, this would not be normal. But I simply do not know. <laughs> I simply do not know. Now, when I say he had gotten engaged to this 16-year-old girl named Rhonda, 
Um, I listened to an interview with her. And I will say that all of these years later, she still talks about him fondly. She has a lot of positive things to say about him. They apparently met and got engaged within the same year, though. So I don't know if she's looking at this situation through rose-colored glasses um, because obviously you're in the honeymoon phase for the first year. Like, you're yeah. not really seeing the real person. Um, and also, when I say they got engaged, what actually happened is he had given her a quote-unquote friendship ring and then told her that he had purchased an engagement ring, but that it was on layaway and would arrive later in the year. And that fact i have not been able to substantiate whether or not he actually had purchased that engagement ring so take that for what you will i'm just laying out the information that i found on the internet and why do i feel like he's a liar like having known no- nothing about him for some reason that just seems like a lie right. but it also could be you know if you really are a good person and you just like you know wanted to get engaged to a 16 year old girl <laughs> And so you give her a friendship ring. I'm picturing like a 25 cent, um, like, you know, yeah. like, a, like a, like from a gumball machine. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And he's like, here's, a, I, we're going to get married. Here's your <laughs> friendship ring. I, I mean, engagement ring. I I, I mean, I, I have mean, an engagement ring on layaway. I this mean, it's is, definitely uh, coming. Don't even worry about it. I'm great. I'm a great pilot man. <laughs> right. Okay. So. One of the stories she tells in this interview with her that I listened to, because it was not filmed, it was an ABC um, Australia interview, and it was in podcast form. And I'll list all of my sources in the show notes for this episode and at the end of the episode. But basically, she gave an example of a story that she feels encapsulates what a great guy he was. And that story is that one time spur of the moment, she really wanted to visit her uncle in a completely separate part of Australia. And he just at the drop of a hat was like, yeah, no worries. I'd love to meet your uncle and just drove her out there and hung out with the uncle for the day and then drove her back. I mean, was he a funkle? Because there's some funkles that I would drive to go see. Yeah. yeah, I have a great uncle who lives in the middle of nowhere and has like a pet raccoon and right. is fantastic. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That kind of uncle, absolutely. Right. But I think her point is that she found it impressive that he like barely knew her and was just down to go meet her uncle. Yeah. So she's like, this is a good guy. Like right. I've found a good man. Right. I'm going to marry him. I found a good man who's 20 and, and I'm, I'm 16. 16. Yeah. All right. So <laughs> moving on with this story. It was always Fred's dream. So his name's Frederick. I'm going to be referring to him sometimes as Valintich, which is uh-huh. his last name, sometimes as Frederick, and sometimes as Fred, because that's just how we roll on this and show. Sometimes 20-year-old guy engaged to a 16-year-old girl. With a friendship ring. Okay. Yes. Mm-hmm. It was always Fred's dream to become a commercial airline pilot when he grew up. With his father's financial backing and blessing, Frederick enrolled in the necessary aviation courses to pursue this dream. Unfortunately, despite studying hard and training diligently, Frederick had failed his commercial airline pilot exams a total of five times by the time 1978 rolled around. Besides repeatedly failing his tests, Frederick had also accumulated at least two citations that I was able to corroborate for unsafe maneuvers during a flight. In one incident in particular, he had been cited by the Australian government for accidentally flying into restricted airspace, something that was considered a crime that he would likely have to go to a hearing about. The other incident, I believe, was him flying straight into a cloud. 
sorry. Are you not allowed to do that? Did you get cloud permission? I don't. Apparently, <laughs> apparently when you're going through the process of becoming a pilot, you have to like go through <laughs> levels, right? So like right. at first, you're only allowed to fly during the day with a training instructor. Okay. Then you're allowed to fly during the day with no training instructor. But then, and then you're allowed to fly during the day into a cloud, apparently. Right. And then you're allowed to fly at night. But and he then just went straight to cloud. He went straight to cloud. <laughs> <laughs> and apparently you can't do that. But the type of man who's going to give a gumball machine ring to a 16-year-old right. girl yeah. might just be the kind of guy who flies into a cloud. The kind of guy that fails the flying test five times <laughs> and continues on it might just be the kind of guy who doesn't take no for an answer. Right. Maybe, you know what? Maybe, though, he was actually so confident in his flying abilities right. that he was, clearly he was fine. He survived flying into that cloud, right? Yeah. So, so they were wrong about so him. So maybe they were wrong about him. And yeah. he was just ready to, like, kind of, maybe he was a throw caution to the wind, throw right. the rules, like, fuck your rules. I'm a pilot. I, okay, I get this. With the horse, I do the same thing. I'm like, if I could just jump, the big jump right now then I would prove that I could do it and then I could just jump the big jumps all the time, right? Right. Jumping the small jump is the same thing as jumping the big jump, right? And and if I just do it, Sounds then, I, logical then to I, me. I prove. And he's thinking the same thing. Okay, if I just, you know, fly the plane into the cloud, I prove that I do it. I have to skip all of those years of training. Right. Just go straight to cloud. It's the same as swimming. Like when I was young, I was like, I can just swim in the deep end. Totally. Same thing as swimming in the shallow end. You're just swimming. Right. So why the fuck can't I do it? Now I'm angry. Thank That's you. right. Okay. So now we're on his side, right? Okay. So undeterred, Frederick continued to fly airplanes and had logged around 150 hours in private aircraft flights. According to official documentation, on the afternoon of October 21st, 1978, Fred made arrangements with Southern Air Service to rent a Cessna 182L model single-engine, propeller-driven airplane for the evening, as he had done many times before. So although he's, you know, not really accomplishing his dream of becoming a commercial airline pilot, he's still pursuing his private pilot license. And right. he's, so he's, he's doing the necessary steps mm -hmm. to get better, yeah. which I kind of love, right? Because he could have said, I failed this test five times. Clearly, I'm not supposed to be a pilot. I yeah. need to like find a new dream. But I kind of like that he's like, you know what? Not everyone's good at everything the first five times. Yeah. Like, I'm going to keep working at it, keep logging flight hours until I achieve my dream. Which is go missing forever. <laughs> <laughs> I did already say that, didn't I? Okay, well... <laughs> So he arrives at the, and I do apologize to our Australian listeners. I do not know how to pronounce some of these words. I'm going to do my best. You guys are welcome to laugh at me in the comments on our photo <laughs> dump because I know I'm not going to say this right. But he arrived at the Mo, Moo Rabin, the Moo Rabin Briefing Office. It's spelled M-O-O-R-A-B-B-I-N. Hmm, yeah, I'm not going to try. Moor Rabin, Moor Rabin. We're going to go with Moo Rabin. He arrived at the Moo Rabin briefing office to receive a meteorological briefing, a process that was required by private pilots before each outing. The purpose of the briefing was to check weather conditions, a process important for any pilot, but especially for a fairly new one like Fred. 
Luckily, the weather in the Cape Otway area where Fred would be flying was clear with excellent visibility and only light winds. There were traces of a few stratocumulus clouds between 5,000 and 7,000 feet and scattered cirrus clouds at 30,000 feet, but Frederick needn't worry about that since he wouldn't be flying that high. It was shaping up to be a perfect evening for a perfect flight. After receiving his meteorological briefing, Frederick submitted a flight plan at 5.23 p.m. showing his intention to conduct a night flight from Moorabbin to King Island and back to Moorabbin again. The cruising altitude indicated in his flight plan showed that Fred would be staying below 5,000 feet and pre-flight aircraft checklists showed that Fred's rented plane had 300 minutes of fuel in it an amount well above what he would need to safely carry out this journey. The estimated flight time for the plan Fred had submitted would be a total of just over 135 minutes round trip. So he basically had over double the amount of fuel he would need. Good. The path showed that Fred would be flying 41 minutes to Cape Otway, then 28 minutes to King Island. Witnesses on the ground in Moorabbin reported that Fred had told them his plan was to pick up some friends on King Island, and he checked out four total life jackets and brought those aboard the plane with him. So to the briefing officer in Moorabbin, this further indicated to him that Fred was likely planning to meet up with three friends and bring them back with him. So I guess when you're about to fly out, obviously there's all these checklists and protocols you have to go through in Mm -hmm. order to carry out a safe flight. And one of the things is is checking out emergency equipment. Okay. So if he were just planning on flying by himself, he would have just brought one life jacket. But he's having this conversation with the guy that's checking out the equipment to him. And he's like, oh, I need four because I'm going to go pick up some friends on King Island and bring them back. Records at the airport show that Frederick Cessna was refueled to full capacity at 6.10 p.m. and then departed promptly only nine minutes afterwards at 6.19 p.m. After departure, Fred established two-way radio communications with Melbourne Flight Services Unit. Since Fred had only just received his Class 4 instrument rating five months earlier, This would be his first nighttime flight, and he was required to make radio contact at regular intervals during his trip. For nearly the first hour of his flight, everything seemed to be going great, although he was a bit behind schedule. Frederick was making the regularly required radio transmissions and reported his coordinates accurately and calmly with no airplane trouble indicated. At around 7 p.m., Valintich finally reached his designated radio reporting point near Cape Otway, saying, Melbourne, Delta Sierra Juliet, now at Cape Otway, descending for King Island. Later, several witnesses on the ground would report seeing a blue and white Cessna matching the description of Frederick's rented plane flying at this exact point at the time he radioed in his location. The air traffic controller on duty that night was a man named Steve Roby and Steve made notes each time Fred radioed him, as was required by his job. Overall, it was shaping up to be an uneventful night, thought Steve. Then, suddenly, a crackling came over the speakers, and Steve heard Fred's familiar voice. Melbourne, this is Delta Sierra Juliet. Is there any known traffic below 5,000 feet? Fred was asking if there were any other aircrafts in the vicinity with him. Steve shuffled through all the flight plans that had been submitted to his office that evening and glanced at the radar in front of him. 
Taking his radio, he pressed the transmission button before responding. Delta Sierra Juliet. No known traffic. Steve settled back into his seat once again, but only three seconds passed before Fred's voice again came over the radio. Delta Sierra Juliet. I am... Seems to be a large aircraft flying below 5,000. Fred's voice trailed off. Aliens? Steve again shuffled through his paperwork, waiting for Fred to continue with his transmission. Seconds ticked by with no more information coming through the speaker. Finally, Steve broke the silence. Delta Sierra Juliet, what type of aircraft is it? I cannot affirm, Fred responded. It is four bright... Well, it seems to me like four bright landing lights. A few more moments passed. Then Fred spoke again. Melbourne, this is Delta Sierra Juliet. The aircraft has just passed over me at least a thousand feet above. Puzzled, Steve responded, Roger, and is it a large aircraft? Confirm. Er, Fred began, unknown due to the speed it's traveling. Is there any Air Force aircraft in the vicinity? Again, Steve triple-checked flight plans and radar transmissions. No, no known aircraft in the vicinity. The airwaves quieted. Well, that was the end of that, Steve thought to himself. Fred must have simply been mistaken. It was dark, after all, and it was his first nighttime flight. Maybe the pilot's eyes were just playing tricks on him. As the seconds ticked by... The microphone crackled again. Melbourne, it's approaching now from due east towards me. Again, Fred's transmission cut off abruptly. A moment passed. Delta Sierra Juliet? questioned Steve. Static noises came through Steve's headphones, indicating to him that Fred was pressing his radio button down but was not speaking. It seems to me that he's playing some sort of game with me. He's flying over me two, three times at a time, at speeds I could not identify. Fred's voice was firm and even, but it was obvious there was a sense of urgency there. Melbourne, this is Delta Sierra Juliet. Is there any known traffic below 5,000? Delta Sierra Juliet, no known traffic. Delta Sierra Juliet, I am... Seems to be a large aircraft below 5,000. Delta Sierra Juliet, what type of aircraft is it? Delta Sierra Juliet... I cannot affirm it is four bright, seems to me like landing lights. Delta Sierra Juliet? Melbourne, this is Delta Sierra Juliet. The aircraft has just passed over me at least a thousand feet above. Delta Sierra Juliet, roger. And is it a large aircraft? Confirm. Uh, unknown due to the speed it's travelling. Is there any Air Force aircraft in the vicinity? Delta Sierra Juliet, no known aircraft in the vicinity. Melbourne, it's approaching now from due east towards me. Delta Sierra Juliet. Delta Sierra Juliet. It seems to me that he's playing some sort of game. He's flying over me two, three times at a time at speeds I could not identify. Delta Sierra Juliet. Roger, what is your actual level? My level is four and a half thousand, four, five, zero, zero. Delta Sierra Juliet, and confirm you cannot identify the aircraft? Affirmative. Delta Sierra Juliet. Roger, stand by. Melbourne, Delta Sierra Juliet. It's not an aircraft, it is... Delta Sierra Juliet, Melbourne. Can you describe the aircraft? Delta Sierra Juliet. As it's flying past, it's a long shape. 
Can it identify more than that it has such speed? Before me right now, Melbourne. Delta Sierra Juliet. Roger, and how large would the uh, object be? Delta Sierra Juliet. Melbourne, it seems like it's stationary. What I'm doing right now is orbiting, and the thing is just orbiting on top of me also. It's got a green light and some sort of metallic, like it's all shiny on the outside. Delta Sierra Juliet. Delta Sierra Juliet. It's just vanished. Delta Sierra Juliet. Melbourne, would you know what kind of aircraft I've got? Is it a type of military aircraft? Delta Sierra Juliet, confirm the uh, aircraft just vanished. Say again? Delta Sierra Juliet, is the aircraft still with you? Delta Sierra Juliet, it's abnormal. now approaching from the southwest. Delta Sierra Juliet. Delta Sierra Juliet, the engine is rough idling. I've got it set at 23, 24, and the thing is... <coughs> Delta Sierra Juliet, Roger, what are your intentions? My intentions are to go to King Island, uh, Melbourne. The strange aircraft is hovering on top of me again. Delta Sierra Juliet. It is hovering and it's not an aircraft. Delta Sierra Juliet, Melbourne. Natalia, what do you make of this audio? That's real? That's real. That plays like out of a science fiction movie yeah yeah i should specify again that that's like a recreation like that's two actors acting out the audio but the transcript is real yeah i mean that's the the transcript just sounds like lines out of a science fiction movie like it's clearly aliens yeah i mean it's pretty compelling after contact with the cessna was lost records show that fred's finger remained on the radio controls actively pressing down on the transmission button. This allowed Steve to hear what was happening inside the cockpit for several more seconds before all contact ceased. Steve described hearing a strange metallic grating sound, as if pieces of metal were scraping together midair. While the entire recording is currently not released to the public, a portion of the actual mechanical sound has been released. Are you ready to hear this, Natalia? Yeah, play it. What do you make of that noise, if anything? I mean, if we're to believe that this giant UFO is like scraping against his aircraft then wouldn't that like like not like blow him up or something or like i don't understand what what is it just tell me what it is well nobody knows what it is right all we know is that steve roby who is the only person manning this aircraft control station in melbourne right is his job is to communicate with pilots who are currently flying. Engaged to 16-year-olds. Engaged to 16-year-olds who fly into clouds, who go from ground to cloud with no qualms. Yeah. Right. So he knows, because the flight plan has been submitted, that the person that is currently flying that he's talking to is someone who is a not necessarily a beginner pilot, right? Has 150 flying hours. he's not good. Because of that, because of his level, his level four, I believe they said. He's not exactly sure how serious to take this account of another... 
Well, no, he knows that he has to maintain contact every a certain number of intervals during the flight to make sure that the pilot is doing okay and that he's on course. It's just a rule they have. So he's maintaining contact with Fred. And then all of a sudden, Fred kind of comes out of left field because up to this point, it's been very like, okay, I'm maintaining course at X amount of degrees, you know, whatever. I don't know. I'm not a fucking pilot, but you know what I mean? Yeah. You know, now beginning descent into King Island. (laughs) Yeah. And then all of a sudden he's like, he comes on the radio and he's like, uh, is there an aircraft near me? And Steve's looking at everything and he's like, no, there's no aircraft near you. It's like, okay, because I see an aircraft. And Steve's like, well, you're mistaken. There's no aircraft. Mm-hmm. And then the transcript becomes more and more frantic. Right. And then all he hears is 17 seconds of a metallic noise. That's his opinion. We don't know what it is. To him, it sounds like a metallic scraping noise. And then the line goes dead. And he is never able to reestablish connection to this pilot or this plane. So if the if the radio just went out, it would be silent, though, right? Like the fact that it's making noise means that he's still actively. Yeah, he's actively in order for you to hear what's going on in a cockpit. I don't know if this is for all planes or just for this type of plane, you need to be actively pressing down on the radio in order for the other person to hear you. So he knows that Frederick is gripping this radio, even though he's not speaking. So there must be some reason why he's not speaking, but still gripping this radio, right? Mm. So once Steve realizes that he could not regain contact with Frederick and Frederick Cessna, he immediately informed his superiors. Unfortunately, it was too dark to go out and search for Frederick that night, but the following morning, bright and early, a full search and rescue mission was launched. And they actually think they have a pretty good chance of finding him because he was trained on how to bail out of an aircraft if something had been wrong. He had brought with him these life jackets and the area where he was flying was actually not far from land. So he, he had already said he was, in fact, beginning his descent into King Island. Mm-hmm. So they're thinking it shouldn't be that hard to find him. Best case scenario, he's alive and he's been hanging out in the water all night. And he'll obviously be like very cold and very traumatized, but hopefully they can find him. Or worst case scenario, if he crashed, they actually should be able to find pieces of his aircraft floating in the water because the way that this model of Cessna is designed is it has certain pieces that are actually built to float if they break off of the aircraft for this very reason because they want you to be able to find people. Right. So they're thinking, okay, there's a pretty, pretty good chance we're going to find at mm-hmm. least the wreckage. So the next morning, bright and early, they go into a full search and rescue mission. At least one military aircraft seven civilian aircrafts and several naval ships were launched and searched the flight path Frederick had logged exhaustively. If Frederick had crashed, search and rescue was confident, like I said, that they would find pieces of his craft floating in the water since certain parts of the Cessna 182 were specifically manufactured to float in the event of a water landing. However, four days later, the search ended with no trace of Frederick, no trace of his aircraft, and no answers. It was as if he had simply vanished into thin air. And although this event itself, as described, is short, the information uncovered in the weeks and years to follow would only deepen this mystery. 
So, Natalia, I am going to get into the theories of what could have happened. Bitch got abducted, obviously. To Frederick Valentich. I'm a, hey, I'm always on the team alien, but right. we got to go through this to be fair. Theory number one, a staged disappearance. Proponents of this theory suggest that Frederick's frantic SOS call was actually part of a carefully crafted hoax. What's he trying to escape from? His 16-year-old fiance? Maybe promises he couldn't keep? I don't know. Perhaps... Men ain't shit. Rather stage their disappearance with aliens (laughs) than fucking... Than tell a 16-year-old you were never serious? (laughs) Perhaps Frederick wanted to make a clean break from his old life to start a new one. And what better way to make a clean break than to fake your own death? This theory may seem far-fetched, but there actually is some evidence backing it up. According to Wikipedia, quote... Even taking into account a trip of between 30 and 45 minutes to Cape Otway, the single-engine Cessna 182 still had enough fuel to fly 800 kilometers or 500 miles. Despite ideal conditions, at no time was Frederick's aircraft ever seen on any radar, casting doubts as to whether or not he was ever even near Cape Otway. With Frederick's flight path now in question, we must ask, where was he? Wait, if he's, but is anything close enough to Australia for him to go? Like, wouldn't he just have to go to another part of Australia? He could be going to another part of Australia. That's right. Um, He could be going to some islands off the coast, uh, just maybe not King Island, which is where he said he was going. And if he wasn't anywhere near Cape Otway, then we have to ask, where was he flying to? In an October 1978 edition of the popular newspaper simply titled The Australian, it states that Melbourne police received several reports of a, quote, light aircraft making a mysterious landing in a location not far from Cape Otway at the same time as Valentich's disappearance. Sounds sketch. Sounds kind of sketch. Now, the cons or the arguments against this theory is that we do know that there were people on the ground who claimed to have seen an aircraft matching the description around the time that he radioed in saying like, hey, I'm going to start my descent into King Island. We don't know, like, were those people mistaken? As we've seen in so many stories, sometimes people just kind of want to be part of the narrative and be like, I saw that, you know, because they just want to be part of something exciting. Right. They just want to be on TV or whatever. Right. Or were they, did they see a different flight that was illegally flying that didn't submit flight plans? I mean, clearly, if this guy has on multiple occasions just flown into clouds and like flown into military airspace, it does happen. Mm -hmm. So maybe it could have been a situation like that. Or... Maybe he did that really was his plane. And then he just decided to make a like veer to the left instead of descending and go somewhere else. We just don't know. Theory number two, suicide. Those who believe in this theory suggest that Frederick may have been unhappy with his life and therefore decided to end it all. Not wanting his family and friends to know what he was about to do, he staged the frantic conversation between himself and flight service specialist Steve Roby so that everyone would think he had died in an accident, thereby sparing his family the pain and shame of a suicide. But wouldn't they have found parts of the plane? Like parts of the plane are supposed to float so they would be able to find it? No, absolutely. I agree with you. But if we're going along with this theory, it has even been suggested that perhaps Frederick had some sort of life insurance policy that he wanted his family to be able to collect on. And as most people know, policies do not pay out in the event of intentional death or suicide. 
So if I take out um, an insurance policy that names my husband as the beneficiary and it's a million dollars and my family is like in a really bad way to the point where I think my only solution is for my family to collect on that insurance policy to have a better life, then staging some sort of accident Mm -hmm. or some sort of unexplained disappearance, it has a better shot of my family getting that money than if I kill myself, right? Because then my family's not going to get the money. Yeah. However, points against this are that Valentich was not married. And as a 20-year-old, it seems highly unlikely he would have had any policies taken out on himself for life, accident, disability, etc. Also, as far as we can tell, he was unemployed. His dad was paying his way to go through this pilot school that he was failing at. So again, it seems unlikely he would have had some sort of life insurance policy, but we really don't know. Maybe he did. Furthermore, ABC Australia interviewed Frederick's former fiance, Rhonda Rushton, the 16-year-old, but they interviewed her in 2019 to ask her about what she thought about this whole situation. And in her interview, she revealed that they had recently become engaged and had made plans with each other after this flight. So they had come together and made these grand plans about their wedding and about this ring that was on layaway and about future plans like they were supposed to hang out after this flight. And she even claimed in one interview that he had actually invited her to come on the flight with him that night to go pick up his friends. But she had backed out at the last minute. And we don't really know why she backed out, but I can only surmise it's because she's 16 and probably at high school the next day. And due to these facts, it seems unlikely that this trip would have been a planned suicide mission because then why would he have invited her to come on this flight with him? Why would he have made all these plans with her? And nobody reported, they did a ton of interviews with people who had Mm -hmm. interacted with him from right before the flight to weeks before the flight. And everyone said he seemed normal, like Mm -hmm. no behavioral changes Mm-hmm. No life events that would have caused him, in their opinions, to want to end his life. But as we know, people hide their trauma and pain. So yeah, and sometimes that's a s- decision people make that's very the impulsive. Yeah. That has no planning, and that's why they make it, because they're not thinking ahead. That's right. So maybe he could have been planning to go to King Island, and then at the last minute had this impulsive thought that he was going to fake an alien abduction and crash his plane somewhere. And for some reason, we just haven't found it. Mm-hmm. It's possible. It's a strange choice to to fake your death or commit suicide by faking an alien abduction. Yeah. That's strange, right? It's definitely not. It's like an outlier. Especially because light aircrafts, light private aircrafts like these Cessnas crash all the time through no fault of anyone, right? Right. Like just pilot error or bad weather or bad flying conditions or an inexperienced pilot. So I think he could have skipped all of that and just crashed if he really wanted to. But if he did that and he wanted to go out and like leave us with this gem, then like I respect it. Theory number three is something called spatial disorientation. Natalia, have you ever heard of this? Is this just a fancy way of saying he was lost? (laughs) No, it's actually way fucking sicker than that. But now every time I can't find my car in a parking lot, which happens almost every day, I'm just going to say I have spatial disorientation. What is it? Okay. So according to Skybrary.arrow. No. No. (laughs) Sky, the, the acclaimed 
Dictionary.com for aviation terms. Skybrary.arrow. Okay. <laughs> Quote, spatial disorientation is defined as the inability of a pilot to correctly interpret aircraft altitude, attitude, or airspeed in relation to the earth or other points of reference. Now, you might say that's a fancy way of saying he got lost, but it's actually so much sicker than that. And we actually, you and I, Natalia, have a friend who is a pilot. And I thought it would be great to give her a call and ask her to explain this to us. And our audience may remember Lauren Holmes from the Sodder Children episode we recorded in December of 2019. So I am going to play an interview, a phone interview with her now where she explains this concept. Okay. Hi, Lauren. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me. So today we're talking about a story that involves a pilot, and this particular pilot has a private pilot's license, and so I thought it would be a good idea to bring you on the show to provide some context, since I know that you also fly small aircrafts, correct? Yeah, I mean, I'm working on getting the uh, pilot's license, private pilot's license, still in progress, so I'll do what I can to um, help answer any questions or add any clarity to it. Perfect. Well, one of the theories that we discuss in this episode is something called spatial disorientation, and I was wondering if you'd ever heard of that term before and what your understanding is of it. Yeah, so, I mean, it's pretty important because obviously it can, it can be fatal um, if you're flying a plane you don't know um, exactly where you are if you're feeling like maybe you're you're level with the ground and you're actually completely to the side or you're up higher but really you're close to the ground or something like that um, so they pretty much just drill it into you though that if you feel disorientated in any way to really rely on your instruments and trust the instruments, even if you feel like you may be somewhere else, like uh, spatially. Day to day, we're on the ground, we're relying on our bodies uh, to tell us exactly where we are in the space, and it's generally always reliable, so we're always able to rely on it without thinking. When you're up in the air, those same, like you're still using the bodily, like you're using your inner ear, your muscles, um, there's different sensory organs to tell where you are, and if you do different maneuvers, it can um, mix your body up because you're not on the ground. So you're not really getting the same reliability and it's different. And because we go to our body to like, we rely on it so much on the ground day to day since we're born, um, it can be really unnerving for people to not rely on their body and be like, no, I know that we're upside down. I need to like switch something up, but then the instruments are saying something different. So that's why it's just drilled in no matter what, listen to your instruments, your body could be lying to you and, that's why, though, it can be such an issue is because we don't believe that our body, like it hasn't failed us yet, and but it's it just is unreliable in the air. Okay, that makes sense because humans, obviously, we're not designed to fly. So yeah. all of our, <laughs> yeah, so our brain, our muscles, our bones, our inner ear, our equilibrium, it's all designed through... Yeah, all Right. It's like through evolution, we are ground creatures, right? So it makes sense that exactly. that we would have to rely on something other than our instincts when we're in an environment we're not supposed to be in. So have you ever experienced any sort of disorientation or confusion about exactly which direction you're facing while you've been flying before? 
Not exactly. Sometimes if you um, start to go up a bit more, if you're facing um, the nose of the plane up and you start to feel like you're going up to, like too much, then you might uh, nose dive a little bit. And if you're not looking at the instruments, it can be easy to maybe go down, like pitch down too far. And then <laughs> you definitely don't want to do that because then you'll have to be headed towards the ground, especially when you're taking off. That's the most dangerous part time and that can happen. So just like slightly, but nothing crazy. Usually it happens at night when you can't see the horizon, clouds or dust or something, just not allowing you to see what's outside. And have you done a nighttime flight before or do you mostly fly during the day? So I haven't gotten to the part in my training where I'm flying um, at night all the time. I've only really flown um, once, like right at sunset, basically. So there's still a little bit of light. Um, but you still have to have all the lights on the plane and everything when landing. So not exactly. So maybe you can offer some insight on this too. So part of the story involves an inexperienced pilot flying a small Cessna aircraft. And Natalia and I were going through the story and we're trying to understand what the process is like of getting a pilot's license. So is are there like levels, for example, I'm assuming when you first start out, it's all like theoretical classroom learning, and then you probably graduate to flying with an instructor, and then you probably graduate to flying alone. And so I was kind of wondering if you could talk us through what that process is or what the steps are. Yeah. So I mean, there are different schools, and there are different thoughts that go with it. But generally, um, you can start flying right away. they I mean, a lot of uh, flight instructors recommend that so that you can get an idea of what you're learning in the classroom. Um, but some people, I mean, there are some where it's more strict. You have to completely do the written exam first until you can, before you can even get into a plane. Um, that'd be more like probably military side or um, something like that. Um, but then there are other schools of thought where they kind of just like put you in there and then don't give you much information. And that can be really dangerous too. That's like almost like the old school way. Um, they don't really do that as much anymore because it's been right. very dangerous. But, I mean, my experience has been, I feel like, pretty standard. Um, I was studying while I'm flying the plane. So um, I passed my written exam, and I was still just working on getting hours during that time. And a lot of the times we would focus on the things that I was learning in, um, for the written exam um, while we were in flight so that I could get better context to that. Um, and then, I mean, usually start with day flights and then you'd work your way up to night flights. Once you get a certain amount of hours and your pilot instructor verifies that it's okay, you can start um, flying solo as well. Once you start flying solo, then you have to get a certain amount of hours to that. The minimum is 40 hours before you can take the actual test for the practical exam. And then you can get your okay. pilot's license after that. But generally, like, people are more like <laughs> I mean, 60 and up probably. Maybe you can offer some insight on this too. So this this story involves a guy in Australia and obviously you live in the United States. So our process here in the States is probably different than the process in Australia. But this particular pilot had about 150 flight hours under his belt, um, but had failed certain exams um, I believe five times and but was still going through the process. So I was wondering, can you fail an exam and then practice and retake it? And is there like a limit for how many times you can take an exam? Yeah, well, so it's actually kind of interesting. I mean, the written exam, you I think it's uh, you should get above 
80% um, in order to pass. Um, and I mean, that's like you, you have to get that and then either pass or fail, basically, and you can keep retaking it. I'm not sure if there's a limit on that. With the practical, though, it's interesting because you have to get 100% no matter what in order to get your license, but you can actually take the test, pass certain segments, they'll write down that you passed certain parts, and you only have to retake the parts that you missed. So then once you get 100%, because obviously they don't want you getting in the air if you don't know everything, because that's dangerous. Um, so it, it's different than like a driver's um, like, uh, test or anything like that, where I feel like it's a percentage even for the practical. But yeah, so I could see that where he took it, he maybe passed some parts and he was still working towards passing the other parts, but he was still allowed to fly solo. And then there's also a part of the story where he had gotten a couple of citations for unsafe maneuvers in the sky while flying solo. And one of the things that he had gotten a couple citations for was just listed as flying directly into a cloud. And Natalia and I were laughing at that because we were like, what does that even mean? Like, so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. You're when you're flying a Cessna, you're flying um, visual flight rules as opposed to instrument. Uh, so VFR, uh, the larger planes, like uh, all the airlines are flying IFR instrument flight rating. And when you're flying visual, you're not allowed to fly like a, like I think it's like 500 feet near a, a cloud. You're not allowed to fly through a cloud no matter what um, because you might not be able to see if there's a plane on the other side and it can be really dangerous. So I that's that's how that happened. So are you ever allowed to fly? Like, do you get a certain amount of experience where they'll let you fly within 500 feet of a cloud or is it just for a Cessna you're never allowed to fly close to a cloud? There are Cessnas where you, they are IFR rated and like the instruments have to be like at a certain level in order to basically see if there are planes on the other side. And so, I mean, it's again, relying on instruments, but a lot of Cessnas wouldn't have all of that. Um, they're, it's a little bit lower tech. Um, so, I mean, I've talked to some pilots actually that were like airline pilots. And they were saying that they do IFR because they are more so in the north where it's like cloudy and and so they can still fly um, through clouds because they're flying IFR even though it's a Cessna. But I mean, it's snow, snow that would prevent it at that point for them. So ice would. But for me, if it's a cloudy day, I wouldn't be allowed to fly basically. Like they would cancel the, um, the flight instruction. That makes sense. Okay. So yeah, so this guy may have just been crazy if he was flying directly into clouds on multiple occasions, or is it easy to do that? Yeah, no, that's really bad. (laughs) That's really dangerous. Okay, so Lauren, as we just learned, she's going through the process of becoming a licensed private pilot. I mean, as we just heard, she said that it's a pretty big topic that they teach you about is how you can become disoriented in the air due to there's no um, reference points like no reference points yeah yes. you're just basically like in a vacuous space especially right. at nighttime it's actually such a crazy phenomenon that can cause you to fly upside down and not know it I would know. Proponents of this theory theorized that Frederick was suffering from spatial disorientation and that this phenomenon caused him to accidentally fly upside down flying upside down But thinking he was right side up, Frederick would have actually been plunging closer and closer to the ocean's surface 
every time he pulled his controls back to try to avoid this aircraft. So maybe he saw his reflection of the plane in the water? Bingo. So this could mean that the craft and lights that he saw, quote unquote, following him were actually the reflection of his own aircraft and his own lights bouncing off the ocean's surface before he eventually plunged into the sea. Now, I that theory gives me... The creeps. The creeps, the fucking chills. I know. It's almost creepier than an alien. Yeah. Because if it's an alien abduction, there's a chance he's alive, right? And like maybe having a sick time in outer that space. That is just so scary to like have that. And it has happened to people before. Why the fuck would you fly at night? Fuck that. Well, I think it was the next step to like advancing his career because you have to prove you can do all these things, right? Like I can fly during the day with an instructor. I can fly during the day alone. Mm -hmm. I can fly avoiding clouds successfully. I can fly during a storm. I can fly at night. So I think this was the natural progression as he needed a certain number of flight hours at night. He can't do that. But he seems to not be good, right? Bless his heart. Right. However, Some pilots do contest this theory. So some pilots that have experienced spatial disorientation say, I find that really hard to believe that he had logged 150 hours and was flying upside down and wouldn't know it. According to information published to Wikipedia, some aviation experts say that this would simply be impossible because even if he didn't know he was flying upside down, They argue that that model of Cessna he was piloting could not have flown inverted for as long as he was on his radio for because it has a gravity feed fuel system, which means that its engine would have cut out very quickly if he was actually upside down. Well, maybe he's so inexperienced that he wouldn't even know the engine cut out. Or maybe he's flying right side up at first, but then as he's trying to maneuver to avoid some sort of aircraft, he's ending up upside down and then remember he says oh it disappeared Mm -hmm. and then all of a sudden he's like it's back it's on top of me right so as we know from the audio tape transcripts in order for this theory to be true frederick would have had to have been upside down for nearly the entire 13 minutes of the call which some people say makes this theory unlikely but not impossible But to play devil's advocate, I did find several YouTube comments from pilots on a video entitled The Disappearance of Frederick Valentich, uploaded to the channel Nick Crowley. And all of these comments basically say some variation of the same thing, so I'm only going to read one of them to you now. This comes from Dire Flyer, who says, As a pilot in training, I can say that no, despite how dark it may have been, you would have noticed you were upside down. When you are flying upside down, your stomach dips a little bit when turning the plane. If he was flying a Cessna as shown in the picture, I also fly that model. So yeah. You know what? One of the things that I want to delete from this world is when people think that they need to, their opinion matters more because they're like somehow part of the group, you know, like where they're like, as a mother of three, or like (laughs) as a student in this, or like, as an artist who uses this same medium. And I'm just like, just fucking say what it is. But also this person didn't even do a good job explaining why he doesn't think it would be possible. His his thing is like, well, his stomach would have dipped. But if you're nervous as fuck and you think there's right. an alien following you, would you not have butterflies in your stomach anyway? Yeah. I mean, also, like maybe he was on drugs and stuff. We don't know. And also, it's a fact that this has happened to people before. And it's actually one of the theories people have about the Bermuda Triangle that something about it makes it super easy to get this spatial disorientation because it's just a vast expanse of nothingness. So Mm -hmm. if you're flying at night, perhaps 
you can accidentally begin to fly upside down or descend w- instead of ascend or read your controls wrong Here's or something like that. Here's what I'm like going to say to that person. As someone who suffers from spatial disorientation, I'm dead and I can't respond to this YouTube comment. Look, as someone who frequently loses her car in any parking <laughs> garage, I can tell you, sir, that I probably have ended up upside down. I also think he's like... I don't know how to say this nicely. Some people just aren't good, you know, like, yeah, like, how are you going to take one soccer player that's like the best in the world next to a novice soccer player and be like the novice soccer player feels the 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 game the same way that the professional does. Right. They just don't. Or or the novice the how can you say the novice would never make this mistake right. because the professional would feel the tickle in their right. stomach. Exactly. I have a tickle in my stomach most days. Yeah. When I choose to eat dairy and I'm not supposed to. <laughs> so I maybe he had eaten some a block of cheese. We yeah, just don't it know. It seems like he just didn't have that it factor that you need to be a pilot, which probably includes knowing when you're upside down (laughs) (laughs) now one other thing that i often see mentioned along with this theory is that several people who knew valentich described him as being a quote nervous and anxious person in general yeah just you make hella mistakes when you're anxious when i'm anxious there's no logic right So just six months prior to Valentich's disappearance, Steven Spielberg's Close Encounters of the Third Kind premiered in Australia, a movie which was a box office hit in the country. But besides the rise in popularity of aliens and pop culture, there are some accounts by people who knew Frederick personally that describe him as being weirdly obsessed with the idea of extraterrestrials. So maybe he flew himself upside down because he was thinking there were aliens or is it is it the perfect storm of, of factors, right? right? Did he have spatial disorientation? Was he kind of a bad pilot? Was he already a nervous person? And now he's obsessed with aliens. Mm-hmm. So it's the perfect storm of him having a frantic transmission saying that he's being abducted. Right. Essentially. And what a coincidence that he was abducted. I was actually reading recently and I didn't write this down, but I was actually reading recently about how there's a correlation between people who have already seen one alien and like just seeing them, like not being able to not see them anymore. Right. Because you're looking for the pattern. Right. You're looking for the pattern or something in your brain has become unlocked to where like you are vulnerable to I that. I the fuck I'd never see an alien. <laughs> I was just thinking like, what if there was an alien standing at the corner right now in this room? Oh my us? God. No. So scary. No. But it's not certain if this is even true or not. Like, maybe these people were just fucking grifters that wanted to jump on this story and be like, he talked to me about aliens one time, therefore he was obsessed. We just Mm -hmm. don't know. Um, But when Frederick's younger brother was interviewed about this, he denied that Frederick had an unusual fixation with aliens and thinks the rumor may have originated because he and his brother had a an interest in Star Wars, which debuted the year before Frederick's disappearance. And so naturally they would be talking occasionally about aliens or there's a huge difference between Star Wars aliens and like tin hat like UFO aliens. Totally. I do want to point out one of the stories I read about Frederick said that he actually told his dad that he had seen an alien as a child and that it had really bothered him to the point where he developed an anxiety disorder, um, fearing what would happen if the aliens came back and took him. (gasps) 
And he he was right. I came across a primary source during my investigation. It is an interview between an investigator and Frederick's father. And I think maybe it provides some context to this comment or idea that Frederick was obsessed with aliens. So I'm going to read you some excerpts from that primary source. Investigator's Notes, file V116-783-1047. Notes made during a preliminary conversation with Mr. Guido Valentich. Mr. Guido Valentich is the father of Mr. Frederick Valentich. He visited this office on October 25, 1978, for the purpose of hearing the tape recording concerning the missing aircraft VH.DSJ in order to identify his son's voice. The following notes were made during general conversation with Mr. Valentich. Financially, Fred had no problems. As far as known, he owed nothing. He was generous to the family on anniversaries, etc. His father assisted Frederick financially with his flying. There were no problems at home. Frederick did his share of the home duties. He wanted a career in aviation and decided to finish his commercial license and eventually get into airlines. He wanted to show everyone that he could do it. Frederick always had the idea that some people wanted to stop him from succeeding, so he didn't discuss his flying or intentions with anyone. He just wanted to get through and surprise everyone by showing them that he could actually do it. Frederick was a firm believer in UFOs. He had saved artifacts and information on UFOs. He had read Chariot of the Gods and other books and went to see movies on the subject. This interest started when he was at school about six years ago. His belief had been strengthened recently when he was allowed to see the RAAF's confidential files on UFOs at East Sale and at Laverton. He wouldn't discuss these details with his family as they were confidential. His mother saw a UFO one night. She called Fred and he saw it too. It was a large light, ten times larger than a star, it was stationary for a while, and then moved off at a great speed. This happened about eight months ago. His father eventually became convinced that UFOs do exist. Frederick worried about attacks from UFOs and what they could do. His father had told him there was nothing they could do and so no point in worrying about it. Signed, P. Graham Investigator. I don't know, but I will also say Frederick's girlfriend, who, like I said, was also interviewed following his disappearance, um, she was asked about the topic of aliens, and she said that just six days prior to Fred's disappearance, he had told her the following, quote, if a UFO landed in front of me right now, I would go into it, but never without you. <laughs> I, uh, I, this story, Alyssa, there's, it's just got too much. It's a lot. And Further, some theorize that Valentich's his generally anxious demeanor combined with his alleged interest in aliens and the addition of possible spatial disorientation could offer an explanation that's pretty logical to the events, right? Like I just said, maybe yeah. this is the marrying of all of the perfect mm -hmm. storm of situations in one thing. 
Also, the closing theory listed in Wikipedia's description of the incident also plays to Valentich's young age and anxious demeanor, stating, quote, A 2013 review of the radio transcripts and other data by astronomer and retired United States Air Force pilot James Magaha and author Joan Nickel proposes that the inexperienced Valentich was deceived by the illusion of a tilted horizon for which he attempted to compensate and inadvertently put his aircraft into a downward so-called graveyard spiral, which he initially mistook for simple orbiting of the aircraft. According to the authors, the g-forces of a tightening spiral would decrease fuel flow, resulting in the rough idling reported by Valentich in the transcript. Magaha and Nickel also proposed that the apparently stationary overhead lights that Valentich reported were probably actually the planets Venus, Mars, and Mercury, along with the bright star Antari, which would have behaved in a way consistent with Valentich's description and would have been bright in the night sky that night, according to meteorological reports. I don't know about that one. Okay, so we're moving on to theory number four. Mm -hmm. So, so far, these theories are interesting. We're learning more information. What about the life jackets that he got? That's well, we're going to we're going to come to that soon. Okay. okay. But theory I already came to it, but sure. <laughs> <laughs> Let me go in order. So theory number four is an electromagnetic disturbance. Now, for those who are unfamiliar with this term, according to Wikipedia, which is our favorite source on this show, quote, electromagnetic interference or EMI, also called radio frequency interference or RFI, when in the radio frequency spectrum, is a disturbance generated by an external source that affects an electrical circuit by electromagnetic induction, electrostatic coupling, or conduction. Oh, wait. Is this why they say don't use your cell phones while the pilot's flying? I thought that was just made-up bullshit. We're going to talk about it. We're going to talk about whether or not it matters. So the disturbance may degrade the performance of the circuit or even stop it from functioning altogether. Both man-made and natural sources generate changing electrical currents and voltages that can cause EMI. Ignition systems, cellular network of mobile phones, lightning, solar flares, and auroras are examples of things that can cause EMI. So man-made electromagnetic interference of an aircraft is best illustrated by the fact that we are asked to turn off our cell phones or place them on airplane mode before takeoff. While recent studies have shown that EMI from cell phones is extremely unlikely, it is still possible. EMI has also been used during wartime to jam enemy electronics. And listeners who have ever played Call of Duty may remember the jammer item, which, when placed in the map in the game, jams anything electronic in its radius to a varying degree. Placing jammer. The jammer can jam any piece of equipment, scramble the enemy player's mini-map, and jam nearby electronic killstreaks. Yeah. In an article for Aerospace Manufacturing and Design, author Ed Nakauchi writes, quote, EMI can cause avionic equipment performance to degrade or even malfunction. EMI can affect cockpit radios and radar signals, interfering with communication between pilots and control tower. Airborne devices that can cause interference include laptop computers, electronic games, cell phones, toys, and all have been suspected of causing events such as autopilot disconnect, erratic flight deck indications, and airplanes turning off course. EMI effects from lightning, solar flares, electrostatic discharge, and high-intensity radiated fields from radar and various kinds of transmitters 
have all resulted in numerous aviation incidents throughout the years. As a result, EMI effects are now considered in all aspects of avionics design and certification. So how does this all apply to the disappearance of Frederick Valentich? We know from the investigation into his disappearance that, quote, Despite ideal conditions, at no time was the aircraft ever plotted on radar, casting doubts as to whether or not he was even near Cape Otway. We also know that Frederick thought he was on the correct course due to the altitude and coordinates he consistently reported to Steve Roby during the flight. It is therefore a logical leap to wonder if something could have caused a malfunction in Frederick's aviation instruments that would lead him to believe he was in a location that does not match with reality. Since Frederick reported bright moving lights in the area, proponents of this theory speculate that perhaps some type of electromagnetic disturbance in the area could have led to a malfunction of the Cessna's aviation instruments and also account for the strange lights Frederick witnessed outside his aircraft. And I also saw one theory that takes this a step further and thinks perhaps ball lightning struck his aircraft, messed with his aviation Mm, equipment. I remember ball lightning. You remember ball lightning. For any new listeners, if you want to learn about ball lightning super in depth, you can go listen to our spontaneous human combustion episode. I'm not going to go back into it here. All you need to know is that it's lightning, but haunted. Yeah. Yeah. Let me think. I feel like I had one more thing I wanted to say about that, but maybe not. Oh, yeah. So I wanted to say to your question, do cell phones actually affect airplanes or is that just like an old wives tale Mm -hmm. um apparently they really used to affect airplanes back in the day but modern airplanes are equipped with these sort of shields Mm. that protect it so that way if some if like some asshole turns their phone off of airplane mode the plane won't just like crash you know what i mean i don't this might be bullshit too i had a communications teacher um, at lmu for my required communications class that said that she had some sort of like EMF thing where like if computers were like Wi-Fi was on or like phones were on or like whatever, it would like really mess with her brain and her communication. Now, a lot of us just thought that she just didn't want us to be like just fucking around. Because on your, it was, your yeah, phones? Yeah, because it was just like a really easy class. It was communications. Right. And so everyone was just like on Facebook and like <laughs> yeah. texting and stuff. But she would like some days come in and be like, oh, you guys like this. It's really bad today. It's like really hurting. Can someone like can we like turn off our phones and stuff? Huh. So I don't know if anyone else has that and it's real. Like comment it below and just be like as someone who suffers from <laughs> EMF. If it's an actual thing that like people suffer from, I'm sorry, but it seems pretty fake. Sorry to this man. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Theory number five, an alien. Obviously. This theory primarily comes from the description that Valentich gave to Steve Roby just before he disappeared. To quote from the transcript we read earlier, Valentich describes the following, quote, it's flying past. It's a long shape. Cannot identify more than it has such speed seems to me that he's playing some sort of game. He's flying over me two, three times at a time at speeds I could not identify. It seems to me like it's stationary. What I'm doing right now is orbiting, and the thing is just orbiting on top of me. Also, it's got a green light and sort of a metallic, like, it's all shiny on the outside. The description of this aircraft does seem to line up with some of the declassified UFO videos we discussed in 2019. Like the long tube shape. Right. Sometimes called the Tic Tac, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm going to play one of those videos now to refresh your memory, Natalia. There's a whole fleet of them. Look on 
120 knots from the west. The whole thing, dude. So, Natalia, can you describe kind of what that aircraft looks like that we know is a declassified video that exists, that we don't know right. what it is? It looks like a pill or like a cigar shape or like a Tic Tac. Right. So I'm sure if you guys haven't seen this video, I will post it with the photo dump for this episode. But yeah, basically, it looks exactly how Valintich describes. Right. And people who see UFOs will describe them as this like often like a big big cigar shape. Yeah. And more and more pilots have come out in recent years saying like, yeah, we've been seeing those for years. We just never mentioned it to anyone because we didn't want people to think we were crazy. Totally. Yeah. Interestingly, though, Valentich's account is not the only contributing factor to this theory of aliens. Author Marcus Loth writes the following in an article for Listverse. Quote, On the same day that Fred Valentich disappeared, Roy Manifold would capture a picture of a strange object in the sky over the same area where Valentich was allegedly flying. Whether the object in the picture is connected to Fred's disappearance or not is open to debate. But what is not open to debate is that this is a genuine picture, which allegedly has been proven to have not been manipulated in any way. So the Australian government actually looked at this photo and was mm-hmm. and was somehow able to determine that it's a real photo that was not manipulated by some sort of rudimentary Photoshop. And I'm going to show it to you now. All right. So this is a photo by Roy Manifold in the area where what is this? Where Valintich okay, was flying. Okay, I'm looking at what looks like I don't know, like a 2012 Instagram photo <laughs> of like a sunset, um, like a grainy like iPhone four. Sunset. This was actually taken in 1978, so the same oh, wow. year and the same day that Valintich was flying and in this area. Literally, like it looks like there's a turkey in the sky. I'm confused. Is that a cloud? There's like a black. It's it something. looks like it literally looks like a turkey. Like I don't know how else to describe it. There's the silhouette of a turkey in the sky. Right. It definitely looks out of place, right? Like yeah. this is not just a cloud that looks weird. It's like something is in the sky. Right. We don't know what. A turkey. Is it did somebody throw a rotisserie tr- turkey into the sky <laughs> at just the right moment that a shadow was cast on it and you I can't quite know. tell what it is? Or could it have been and the alien aircraft that Valintich reported seeing. Mm. So the guy who took this photo, Roy, his son, Jason, was with his father on the evening in question. And according to this article by Marcus Loth, quote, he says that while his father had gone inside his shed after taking the picture, Jason remained outside watching the sky. Although he didn't say anything, he could hear the sound of a plane engine overhead. Instead of gradually fading off into the distance as a plane engine would normally, however, the engine suddenly and abruptly came to a stop as if someone had turned it off. Then there was nothing but silence. Roy believes that what he heard was connected to the disappearance of Valentich. In an interview for Australia's Herald Sun newspaper, journalist Mark Dunn interviewed air traffic controller Steve Roby to get his take on the alien theory. So remember, this is the guy guy that that was talking talking to on the ground. Yes. So Dunn writes in his article, quote, another option Mr. Roby doesn't discount is that Valintich was indeed taken by a UFO or interfered with by an unidentified craft. He cites the dozens of UFO sightings and reports of unexplained lights both immediately before and after the Valentich disappearance that night. 
In another strange coincidence, Mr. Roby said that he was working at air traffic control about five days later, and another light aircraft pilot radioed him during a navigational flight above East Sail in Australia and reported being passed three times by an intensely bright light traveling at jet speeds coming close enough to force him to land his aircraft. Why Why are they, like, so aggressive? Well, and Mr. Roby recalled, quote, I jokingly said to the guy next to me, here we go again. So this is now an, a second pilot, five days after Valintich disappears, that reports a nearly identical occurrence happening. Right, just like In angry, the nearby area. Angry, rogue. Like- bitch aliens. aliens they're like like uh you know the, those wasps i think they're i can't remember murder hornets yeah yeah they're just like come fuck your shit up for no reason right i know so is this a murder hornet alien ufo situation seems like it all p- signs are pointing to that right and this particular pilot who's unnamed who is an- remaining anonymous but mr roby's telling us mm-hmm. this story is presumably a better pilot than Valentich and was able to successfully conduct an emergency landing, right? So, right. but he says this craft was so aggressive with him passing over and under him that he was forced into this emergency landing. How have we thought about this theory? What if Steve Roby and Frederick Valentich are the same person, like at the end of Fight Club, <laughs> and they realize this at the same time? And it's like the end of Fight wow. Club. What if Valintich is the alien, the pilot, and the air traffic yeah, controller? Why got, stop there? He what if sh- he's the guy that took the photo of the turkey in the sky? <laughs> what if you and I are Fred Valintich and this podcast is called <laughs> Let's Get Fred Valintich? <laughs> you guys, it's, it's like, like so 11 p.m. Late. Okay. It's so late and we're we're, clearly, we're still going. Yeah. Okay. In a study of this incident written by Richard F. Haynes and Paul Norman for the Journal of Scientific Explanation, the authors would note that, quote, in the years following this event, Paul Norman succeeded in locating and interviewing a number of people traveling or living in the region along Great Ocean Road, which runs north and south through Apollo Bay. Reports were obtained from 20 eyewitnesses in this region describing an erratically moving green light in the sky at the same time of evening as Valentich's flight. In addition, Paul Norman learned of three primary eyewitnesses who shed valuable new light on this event. Their testimony is recounted here. They saw both the lights of a small aircraft and a very large green light traveling directly above it. The primary witness, Mr. Ken Hansen, who was 47 years old at the time, told his wife of what he and his two nieces had just seen on their way home, but she just laughed at his story and told him he had a wild imagination. What a bitch. The following morning at work, he told his fellow employees, who believed what he said about seeing the airplane, but not about the large green object flying above it. Of course, at this early date, he could not have known anything about Valentich's description of a green light flying above him. Hansen decided to drop the subject to avoid further ridicule. Years later, he happened to to discuss his sighting with a local policeman, who later mentioned the story to Guido Valentich, the father of Frederick Valentich. Guido then told author Paul, who interviewed Hansen and his two nieces. 
Both girls gave the exact same basic details as their uncle. So now we've got a dude who the night of Valentich's weird cryptic transmission literally sees this. A bright green light, which Valentich describes, Mm -hmm. following directly above a Cessna airplane. Mm. I don't know. Okay. Theory number six, a time traveler. This theory is fairly (laughs) Natalia, don't look at me like that. Stick with me. This theory is fairly simple. What if Frederick Valentich had somehow crossed paths with a time traveler flying some type of extremely advanced aircraft able to pull the maneuvers Valentich described in his radio transmission? This theoretical aircraft may also have an advanced cloaking system, which covered not only the UFO, but also Valentich's aircraft. This is alien erasure, and I don't like this. This could explain why the object seemingly appeared out of nowhere before disappearing into thin air and then appearing again just as quickly. I'm going to say no, that this is alien erasure, because you can say that to any alien thing. You can be like, what if the aliens are time travelers from the future? It's kind of a cop out. Technological advancements. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I'm with you on that. Now, theory number seven and theory number eight, I've combined into one paragraph because they're kind of the same thing. Theory number seven is a cryptid. Theory number eight is an angel or demon. Allegedly flying at just under 5,000 feet, Frederick would have been too high in the air to be affected by sea cryptids. But these theories speculate. (laughs) 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 Who the fuck is listening to this? Seriously? Like, are you guys on your way to work? Like, can you tell people this this is a serious journalistic podcast? Let me get through this theory. This theory speculates that Frederick could have perhaps come into contact with some type of flying creature, whether that be some type of force, such as an angel, a demon, a god, or some type of cryptid. Proponents of this theory point to Valentich's own words as confirmation that he saw a creature and not an aircraft. Because remember that the last thing he said to Steve Roby before the dead air was, it is hovering and it's not an aircraft. Those were his last words. Oh, man. You shouldn't have said that, dude. Are you crying? <laughs> Natalia's crying. I'm No, I'm not crying. I. This is so frustrating. And in various Aboriginal stories, there are several tales of creator gods shaped like snakes living in the area. Could Frederick have seen one of these creator gods and been sucked into some sort of time portal <laughs> or otherwise? Or otherwise destroyed altogether? Yeah, I mean, clearly. (laughs) But let's definitely, like, rule out a sea cryptid as being ridiculous because he's too far away from the water for a sea cryptid. (laughs) That would just be absolutely ridiculous. (laughs) Okay. All right. Hold on. We're almost done here. Theory number nine. A time slip. Okay. This theory speculates that the particular area that Valentich was flying through is considered a hot spot for mysterious events because there is something inherently supernatural about it. A thinning of the veil, if you will, between two or more worlds. Some paranormal investigators attribute this phenomenon to something called a time slip. 
Paranormal studies of alleged time slip incidents claim that there are certain geographical areas more prone to this phenomenon than others, with ancient areas of historic importance being the most likely. And we might call that a haunted location, right? right? So maybe a location where some tragedy occurred Mm -hmm. or where some massacre happened or a war. And in an article by journalist Flick Everett for the Daily Mail, he writes that, quote, Rodney Davies, a paranormal researcher and author of Time Slips, Journeys into the Past and Future, has spent years gathering material on this phenomenon and admits he still struggles to explain it. When a time slip occurs, he suggests, it may simply be that our limited mind is briefly able to perceive the simultaneous past or future in that spot. One theory states that past, present, and future are all one, he says, but our limited consciousness can only experience time by being in what we know as the present. Therefore, if we enter a particularly haunted location, as soon as we cross into that threshold, we may be able to simultaneously perceive the past, present, and future of events that have occurred in that area, or maybe just the past, or maybe just the future. And as we learned in your Time Slips episode last year, Natalia, there have been cases where people claim to just be walking along or driving along, right. and all of a sudden they're transported into a completely different universe. Uh, you know, I was thinking like how I could perceive, like he's like saying, oh, it's impossible for us to perceive the past, the present, and the future. And to him, I would like to ask him if he has ever combined Adderall and cocaine. <laughs> Because, because then he would be able to perceive. Now we get into the final theory, and you know I saved my favorite for last. Oh, what's this going to be? This is titled the Bass Strait Triangle. The area Valintage disappeared from is often referred to as the Bass Strait Triangle due to the fact that, much like the famed Bermuda Triangle, there have been quite a few mysterious aviation and naval disappearances in that geographical region over the years. Wow. According to Wikipedia, Bass Strait is generally shallow with an average depth of 160 feet. It's a stretch of water approximately 190 miles wide and 120 miles long from north to south encompassed by the entire northern coastline of Tasmania and Victoria's central to eastern coast. And the area had a bad reputation for hundreds of years, even prior to Valentich's disappearance, due to the strong winds, shallow waters, sharp coral reefs, and unpredictable sea conditions of the area. Bass Strait itself was actually discovered when a ship crashed into it in the 1700s and then a rescue ship that went out to save them also crashed and mysteriously disappeared in the area. So it's a haunted location. Which also might be an argument for time slips. Mm -hmm. I'm going to show you a picture of where the approximate location of the Bass Strait Triangle is and I would like you to describe it to our audience. Yeah, it looks like it's just the bottom part of Australia. That's right. Yeah. So it's a strait that runs basically by Tasmania um, in the bottom portion of Australia. And I'm going to post this map to at Let's Get Haunted. Now, Wikipedia also lists several maritime and aviation disasters that occurred within this triangle. And I'm just going to read you the most interesting ones. 
There was the British warship HMS Sappho in 1858, in which well over 100 lives were lost and no identifiable wreckage was ever located, despite it being such a large ship. In 1901, there was the SS Federal, which disappeared carrying coal from New South Wales with 31 crew, and the wreckage was not located until 2019. In 1906, there was the SS Ferdinand Fischer, a German cargo ship, which disappeared and was never found. Then there was the SS Amelia J, a schooner that disappeared on the 10th of September 1920. The HMAS Swordsman was commissioned to search for the ship. And then while searching the Bass Strait, a second ship, the SS Southern Cross, mysteriously disappeared with no trace. A military air code DH.9A, which I assume is an aircraft, engaged in the search, but then also disappeared without a trace. Then wreckage from the SS Southern Cross was found on King Island, which is where our, the was pilot going. was going towards. But the SS Amelia J, which is the original craft that everyone went out to look for, was still never discovered. And neither was the aircraft that disappeared while searching for the ship. Then, totally separate incident, the de Havilland Express Miss Hobart went missing soon after entering service in 1934. And only a very, very small amount of wreckage was ever found along the Victorian coast. And in the final transmission from the Miss Hobart crew, the pilots claimed they could hear the sound of a plane around them. And then there were several reports of an aerial machine, quote unquote, barreling towards them. They then reported they could hear a metallic humming sound. And then all transmissions ceased and the Miss Hobart disappeared. That's what happened. Then separate incident in 1935, the Loina, an airliner, crashed into the sea near Flinders Island with three crew aboard. The aircraft had just radioed the control tower in Tasmania to say it was preparing to make its descent when suddenly everything went silent. That's what happened. During the Second World War, several aircraft bombers were lost during exercises in the Bass Strait while on training flights out of air bases. In 1972, a de Havilland Tiger Moth flown by a woman named Brenda Heen and a man named Max Price, disappeared on a flight from Tasmania to Canbury. It was believed to have crashed at sea somewhere between the East Coast and Flinders Island. In 1978, the Cessna flown by Frederick Valentich disappeared after reporting a UFO and a metallic sound in the area. And in 1979, so just one year later, the yacht, the Charleston, disappeared while sailing to Sydney to join the Sydney Hobart Yacht Race. So this theory can either be tied in with time slips or it can be tied in with an alien theory, depending on how you want to look at it. And that's because of an event that took place on April 6, 1966 in the northern portion of the Bass Strait Triangle. So according to that same Listverse article I quoted earlier by Marcus Loth, he goes on to write, quote, on April 6, 1966, multiple Melbourne school children and school staff witnessed a huge disc-shaped object come into view and calmly make its way over their heads into the trees next to their cricket field where they had been playing. The children would follow the object for several minutes before it vanished over the trees and out of sight. Now, maybe we could just say that's kids with overactive imaginations, 
But besides the school children reports, there were also reports from other witnesses who stated that the larger craft was trailed by five other independent craft, either giving chase or acting as a guide unit, depending on which report you listen to. And it is still one of Australia's most well-known and well-documented UFO cases on record and would go on to be known as the Westall UFO incident. Hmm. So it seems like there's kind of a lot of supernatural stuff happening in this area now closing extras i have that don't fit into any theories but i think are is important information to mention i would like to read the original incident analysis which is available on the national archives of australia what i'm about to read to you is an excerpt from one of the original investigators notes in charge of investigating the disappearance of frederick valentich At 17.23 hours on 21 October 1978, Mr. Frederick Valentich lodged a flight plan for a private night VMC flight in VHDSJ to King Island via Cape Otway and returned to No Rabin at altitudes below 5,000 feet. ETD No Rabin was specified as 17.45 hours with estimated time interval of 41 minutes to Cape Otway and 28 minutes to King Island. Fuel endurance was shown at 300 minutes. He discussed the weather forecast with the Morabian briefing officer, but he did not make any request for aerodrome lighting to be switched on for his arrival at King Island. It was established that King Island Flight Service Unit had already closed. Therefore, it would be necessary to cancel SAR to Melbourne Flight Service by telephone on arrival. He told the briefing officer he was going to King Island to pick up passengers. He was not certain of how many, but would telephone Melbourne Flight Service with his ETD King Island and details of passengers and SAR watch before leaving King Island. At 1810 hours, the aircraft was refueled to capacity. The pilot did not leave the aircraft during refueling, and the aircraft departed Morabin at 1819 hours. Two-way radio communications were then established with Melbourne Flight Service, who were responsible for maintaining a communications and SAR watch on the aircraft turning the course of its flight. At 1929 hours, the pilot of VHDSJ reported positions at Cape Otway, and at 1906-14 hours, the pilot asked Melbourne Flight Service for known traffic below 5,000 feet. He was told there was no known traffic. The pilot then proceeded to describe in detail the various maneuvers of apparently another aircraft or flying device operating in close vicinity to his aircraft. During the course of his description, he stated his altitude to be 4,500 feet, and at 1911.52 hours, he reported that the engine of VHDSJ was running rough, but he intended to continue to King Island. Melbourne Flight Service declared the alert phase and and initiated action to recall a King Island Flight Service officer to duty and activate King Island Airport emergency procedures. At 1912-28 hours, communications from VHDSJ ceased abruptly and no further communications were received. The distress phase was declared at 1933 hours when the aircraft failed to arrive at King Island and an extensive ground sea and air search was immediately initiated. The search action was terminated at 1900 hours on 25 October 1978 after divers and widespread search efforts failed to locate any wreckage or information of the whereabouts of the aircraft and its occupants. 
The available evidence indicates that the pilot, Frederick Valentich, was rapidly running out of time. He had told his family, girlfriend, and associates that he only had one subject left to pass to to gain his commercial pilot license, and he was currently going to instructional classes twice a week to study that subject. His father was assisting him financially to obtain his commercial license. The names of the ground training organization he was, he was attending could not be established. On two occasions, he sat for and failed all five CPL subjects, and during July 1978, sat for three CPL subjects and failed them all. He had penetrated Sydney Control Zone during a flight in July 1978, and just prior to this flight, he had received a counseling letter from the New South Wales region. Prior to this flight, Valentich had made known known his intention to fly to King Island for some time, and it was generally believed by his family, girlfriend, and his immediate acquaintances that the purpose of this flight was not to pick up passengers, but to pick up and bring back crayfish. However, he told the operator and the Morabin briefing officer that the purpose of the flight was to bring back passengers. There was no evidence of any passengers at King Island waiting for him to pick them up. Nor did he have any orders for crayfish other than one crayfish from a member of the Air Training Corps. He did not order crayfish from King Island prior to his flight, and it happened at that time that no crayfish were even available at King Island. He told his girlfriend he would meet her at 19.30 hours, a time he could not possibly keep. He told his father he would be home directly after his return from King Island. He did not request aerodrome lighting at King Island for his arrival, but he was aware that King Island Flight Service Unit had closed. It seemed possible that he may not have had any intention at all of proceeding to King Island. His girlfriend had stated that he perspired profusely and his voice changed during any unexpected or out-of-the-ordinary situation. It was not particularly noticed while monitoring the recorded communications containing his detailed description of the other vehicle's maneuvers that his voice remained, quote, matter-of-fact and completely normal. If it had been the pilot's intention to disappear, a number of directions of travel were open to him to maintain communications for the period he did while operating below 5,000 feet. However, it is unlikely that any such document would have been available to him and his possible tracking directions would be limited to known coverage areas. Had the flight proceeded as planned and the aircraft did crash into the sea, it is most probable that wreckage would have indeed been sighted by now. The aircraft disappearance without a trace and no wreckage was located or information received concerning the whereabouts of the aircraft and its occupant. It is therefore not possible to determine the cause of the disappearance, but it seems likely that the aircraft did not crash in the sea between Cape Otway and King Island. Finally, I want to add one last thing, which is that many people, when talking about this story, say one of two things. They either say that to this day, no wreckage has ever been discovered, or they say that to this day, one piece of wreckage has been discovered from Valentich's aircraft. And both of these things are half-truths. So the original source material, which I was able to find on the National Australian Archives, has something that I think is sort of interesting, and I'd like to read it to you. And it comes from 1983. Quote, recently, a piece of an aircraft was found washed ashore on the west coast of Flinders Island. 
It was found on the beach at Perry's Bay, opposite the northern end of Flinders Island Aerodrome. The date of finding was the 15th of May, 1983, and there is reason to believe the piece had not been on the beach for more than a few days. It has been identified as having come from a Cessna 182 aircraft between a certain range of serial numbers. The part is an engine cowl flap for the control of airflow over the engine. It is 300 millimeters long by 210 millimeters wide and 40 millimeters at its deepest point. It had two side panels when first found. The piece was once white with acrylic paint and is made of aluminum composition now greatly eroded by the sea. The operating bolt of steel, while heavily corroded, appears to have failed on impact or during a flight. A Cessna 182 aircraft on a flight from Moorabbin to King Island last reported position at Cape Otway, Victoria at 1900 hours on 21 October 1978. The serial number of this aircraft falls within the range of serial numbers applicable to the part found, however, cannot be conclusively linked to that aircraft. So my point is saying that no wreckage of a Cessna ever found was ever found is not accurate because they did find but they a can't small prove piece. It's that one. But they can't prove it because it only it's so tiny. I'll show you a picture. It, it looks like um, trash. It looks like a small piece of metal trash. And also conveniently with modern technology, we would be able to test it and see how long it had been in the ocean. But it has disappeared from the archives. Of course it has. Of course it has. What do you make of that long report I read to you? That's the official report. I find it interesting that they're noting a bunch of inconsistencies with right. what Valentich had said to different people leading up to the flight. You're kind of making it seem like he faked his own death. It kind of seems like it, right? Yeah. I mean, that's kind of what it seems like. But I don't know. When I tell people what I'm doing, like, they're like, hey, uh, wh- where, what are you doing? Like, when are you going to be home? I might, with my ADHD brain, be on one plan and tell one person one thing. Right. But then my ADD has come up with a new plan by the time I talk to the new person. And I don't have time to, to go back and tell the old person the old plan because it doesn't matter. It doesn't fucking matter. I agree with you. It it would make sense to me, especially if he's kind of a nervous, anxious dude anyway. It would make sense to me that he's telling his dad, hey, I'll be back right after King's Island flight. But then telling his girlfriend, no, I'm actually going to come over to your house after the King Island flight and then go home. Because I kind of get that of like just not wanting to run that by your parents and just be like, yeah, I'll be home after the flight. Like they don't know when I'm going to be back. Why do I need to add extra steps? Right. Exactly. But what doesn't make sense is the fact that he didn't tell King Island that he was flying in. So he when you do a nighttime flight, Mm -hmm. apparently you have to tell the airport you're flying into, especially if it's a small airport. Hey, I'm flying into your airport because they only had like two dudes on duty. And he's they had also a bad turned all pilot, the flights. So maybe um, yeah. he just didn't yeah. do that. But that's super unusual, especially if he really was trying to get his license. Right. So then this random guy on the ground was just like, okay, some random plane's not supposed to be here talking to me. Well, Steve Roby had received, he had s- submitted the flight plan to the fl- to the airport he was flying out of. 
Valentich had, had, you have to do that because mm-hmm. he was renting that aircraft. It wasn't his. Right. So you have to submit the flight plan there. But as a pilot, apparently, at least in 1978, you're also supposed to tell the, the uh, submit your flight plan to the airport you're flying into. And mm-hmm. he didn't do that. So they had gone home for the night. They had turned off all their lights at the, at the landing area yeah. and gone home for the night. And then once Steve Roby realizes that there's something wrong with this plane, he's going through his protocol of reporting to the necessary people like, hey, something's wrong. And one of the last things he said to me is that he was beginning to send into King I- King's Island. Mm-hmm. So then he calls King Island and he's like, hey, tell me if you see this airplane that's in distress. And they're like, we're not even there because nobody mm-hmm. ever told us. And so then they have to send someone out in an emergency situation to go turn all the lights back on. Um, I wonder if there's something like if the family and the girlfriend are protecting him. Like if he's a pilot and he's 20, he's trying to be a pilot. I'm assuming his family has money because you don't just like train to be a pilot unless you're either come from a family of pilots or like someone has money to do that for you it's expensive i also think though the 70s were just like a different time i feel like you could like working a blue collar job you could be middle class you know what i mean and now it's like much harder to do that i was actually just reading an article about it the other day because of inflation or something i don't know man you're right something so you're telling me if we time slip i need to go back to the 1970s apparently yeah yeah, this is super crazy. There's a bunch of shit going on. It seems like one time it's aliens, and then it seems like he fakes his death, and then it seems like there's no way it could be a sea cryptid. Yeah, <laughs> too far away from the water. And then sometimes it, I think that like, okay, it makes sense that you know he's just a bad pilot and like was seeing his own reflection or ball lightning because other people see the ball lightning. That's the thing. Uh, Why have so many people come out saying they saw green lights at that time or they saw UFOs during that time? That dude that just happened to take a picture of a UFO. Right. A turkey on the exact day. (laughs) That guy who had his son throw a basted butterball turkey into the air in front of a beautiful sunset i don't know like i feel like this podcast is like making a wrinkle in my brain that like i don't want you know i look i spent (laughs) i spent time researching that it couldn't have been a sea cryptid so nobody (laughs) is more entrenched in crazy town than me after this episode Oh, man. So I don't know. I think my favorite theory is the idea of this sort of Bermuda Triangle, a.k.a. the Bass Strait Triangle, because that's really interesting to me that there have been so many disasters in that area. Mm -hmm. Um, But also, it kind of seems like maybe he faked his own death. If you can't even prove, if you still haven't found any wreckage to this day or anything you can prove beyond a reasonable doubt that Mm -hmm. it's the wreckage, I wonder if he just landed somewhere. Especially remember there was that one account of someone that was like, I saw a random Cessna landing in my area. But it's also Australia and it's like the Wild West there. That's true. And they just like fly planes and like kill alligators and like drive on the other side of the road. They live with like these giant spiders that are the size of your head and it's just like not a big deal to them. They're on another level. Right. right? So again, this dude who just like fucking goes from ground to cloud Mm -hmm. at a moment's notice. (laughs) Full Australian. He's like Liam Neesoning, who's also Australian. He's just Liam Neesoning into a cloud. Are Australians like the Russian? beach people you guys what do you think happened here Mm -hmm. let us know natalia 
um say your favorite theory and then give me your sign off i think i think i'm not gonna rule anything out except for that it's a secret <laughs> because all of them could sort of play off each other right like if it's emf it could also be the ball lightning which could also be aliens or a demon because we we found out from the anunnaki episode that perhaps aliens and the demons are the same thing and this podcast has just taught me that all theories back each other up this is a closed ideology podcast where like you use your own ideology to explain your ideology so, like, the fact that ball lightning exists explains that aliens exist. Also could be some sort of serpent god in the sky <laughs> that rose from the sea but isn't a sea cryptid. Right, and, exactly. Because that's know, ridiculous. We're just not... Just, we're not ruling anything out in fact, except the sea cryptid. Sea cryptid. <laughs> um, okay. Uh, <laughs> BRB. Gotta go fake my own death. Uh fake my own death to escape my 16 year old fiance that is waiting for me with a promise ring uh because my engagement ring is definitely just on layaway and i'm not faking my death actually did i say too much already okay bye And now time to read our sources for this episode. I'd like to give a very special shout out to Steve Willis. You can find him on twitch.tv forward slash Mr. Stevie Games. He is an Australian gamer and Twitch streamer who graciously agreed to read Frederick Valentich's final transmission. I'd also like to thank the following sources. The, the Disappearance of Frederick Valentich, a YouTube video by Nick Crowley. The Wikipedia page on the disappearance of Frederick Valentich. An article entitled Valentich Disappearance, New Evidence and a New Conclusion by Richard F. Haynes and Paul Norman for the Journal of Scientific Exploration, Volume 14, Number 1, pages 19 through 33. A 2019 podcast episode produced for ABC Australia entitled Last Light, The Valentich Mystery, which features interviews from real people who were there. Truth Was Out There After All, an article by Miles Kemp for adelaidenow.com.au. Ten Truly Bizarre Incidents from the Bass Strait Triangle, written by Marcus Loth for listverse.com. Have you ever experienced a time slip? An article by Flick Everett for DailyMail.co.uk. Controlling the EMI effects of aircraft avionics by Ed Nakauchi for Aerospace Manufacturing and Design.com. And the National Archive of Australia's 319 page file on the disappearance of Frederick Valentich. <laughs>